What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Dr. Justin Frank, the professor of psychiatry at George Washington University, has been on this program many times, very popular with our listeners and viewers. He's going to be with us taking your calls. He did an hour with us before where he and I talked. But this is going to be sort of like, you know, when you talk to Congressman Pocan or talk to Congressman Connor or Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, he's going to take your calls on this kind of twin trauma of five years of Donald Trump and what that has done to America and the attempt to overturn our democracy on January 6th and being locked up in a pandemic for a year and the trauma and the toll that that has taken on all of us individually. And so it'll be an opportunity for you to ask your questions of a licensed, certified psychotherapist and psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry about those kinds of issues. So that's our day. There are a couple of things that I just wanted to draw to your attention before we just get into it. So there's two stories that I wanted to just point out because I think that they are probably among the most underreported pieces of larger stories. And I'll just lay these on you and then I'll pick up your phone calls. First of all, there's a media narrative out there that Anthony Fauci and Rand Paul, and it's true, in testimony before the Senate, Rand Paul said basically to Fauci, I've had COVID. I'm a doctor. And he is. I believe he's an MD ophthalmologist. So in, in any case, he, or maybe he's an optometrist. I'm not sure. In, in any case, Rand Paul is saying, you know, I've had COVID. And once you've had a disease like this, you're immune. And so isn't wearing a mask just theater, you know, for me to wear a mask. And you've been fully immunized. You're, and yet you're wearing a mask. That's just theater, right? And Fauci said, no, it's not right. And Paul tried to talk over him. And then Fauci comes out and says this. And this is the thing that shocked me when I heard Fauci say it. I mean, shocked me. And I'm not, this should be the top headline. Fauci said in the South African study conducted by Johnson & Johnson, they found that people who were infected with the wild type, that's the original COVID, 
and were exposed to the 351 variant in South Africa, it was as if they had never been infected before. They had no protection. You get this? Basically what he was saying to Rand Paul was, you think you're safe because you've gotten COVID and you've, you've recovered from it? There's a South African variant that is coming that will take you down, Rand Paul. And I'm thinking that could be true of anybody else too, right? I mean, we're seeing right now these, this surge in infection that's sweeping across Europe. And some of that is that South African variant. I've not seen any good numbers on this. But if this is, if what he said is 100% true, and again, why is this not the biggest headline out there? If what he said is 100% true, then first of all, you have to question even whether the vaccine will protect you from the South African variant or how effectively it will. But we do know, I mean, the, the, the body's immune system is, is really finely calibrated. And apparently having regular COVID the body zeroes in on some part of the COVID, probably it's DNA, but maybe some protein on its surface. The body zeroes in on some part of it that is different in the South African variant. Now, the question is with the vaccines, now with the RNA virus vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna shots, what they do is they cause the body to produce proteins that are similar to some of the parts of the spike protein on the virus. Now, that may not be how our normal immune system works. And if that's the case, then cool. That means that those vaccines will probably give you immunity to the South African variant, even though your normal immune system, Rand Paul's immune system, wouldn't. And we don't know about the Johnson & Johnson, which is using an adenovirus, basically a common cold virus, to transmit little bits of DNA into cells that will make more of that that will produce an immune response. You know, they're kind of more of a traditional vaccine kind of thing. But this was the J&J studies where they were finding that its efficacy was reduced substantially when confronted with the South African virus. But more importantly, people like Rand Paul who think they're immune because they got the virus are not immune at all to the South African variant, which means that the vaccine is a much better way of getting immunity than getting sick, which is kind of the opposite of what they're saying over on Fox News. Why is nobody pointing this out? Or am I missing something here? I, I really don't think I am. It's just like, you know, nuance is something that, that just doesn't get done. There's a couple other stories. I'll get to them as we continue through the program. But I know that there's a whole bunch of folks who are on hold and uh, want to hop in here and you know, have their say and share their thoughts. So Jerry in San Francisco, Jerry, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I was going to say, I've been listening to the Chauvin uh, uh, jury selection <clears throat> mm -hmm. and uh, I can't really make heads or tails of it. If it's fair or not fair, I've heard uh, different opinions of, uh, of civil rights attorneys talking about it. But it did make me think about the last time I was on a jury was uh, about five years ago in San Francisco. And I was sitting there. We almost had the jury completed. There was one African-American woman on it, one Asian woman, and everybody else was white and male. And we hadn't seen the defendant yet. And the uh, uh, African-American woman asked if she could be excused. 
Uh, she had three kids and worked three separate jobs. And uh, the judge kept on talking about a jury of your peers and blah, blah, blah. And finally he said, okay, listen, uh, I'll release you. She was replaced by a white male. Another woman on there was an Asian woman who said she can speak English, she can listen, but she has a very difficult time with some accents. And she's afraid that she'd miss a lot of the dialogue or testimony. So she was released. And so we ended up with all white, probably 10 to 2, and nobody under 30, as I remember. And then the the defendant was brought in, and the judge asked the, everybody to stand. And the defense attorney leaned over and whispered in the defendant's ear, who happened to be a young African-American man, and he turned around to greet, to say hello. And he looked at us, and it was like, he looked like a scared 10-year-old kid. He just mm-hmm. looked. Then talked to his lawyer, and judge says, we're going to have a recess. When the judge came back about five minutes later, he says, you're excused that we've come to a, a decision or a, what, a deal that the, the prosecution is, as well as the defense. So as we begin to walk out, the woman ahead of me was in the jury, taps another guy and says, boy, I'm glad we got released. I can't, I could never understand a black man's speech. So you're when you talk about jurors of your peers, or yeah. an impartial jury, I don't think we're going to, you know, there's a mixed juror yeah. right now, jury on with Chauvin. Which is which just, is probably a good thing. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, jury, we're just all humans. I mean, thank you for the story. Ed in Binghamton, New York. Hey, Ed, what's on your mind today? Hi, uh, last time I called was when you had brunch with Bernie during the deep, uh, deep water oh horizon Gulf disaster. So I'm calling to say Biden's Build Back Better needs to include Medicare for All because naturally it's great for people, but also it would help small businesses recover and let small businesses start up too. And I hope unions see, you know, the wisdom in Medicare for All. And I only speak from having a small business for 30 years and provide health care insurance, but it was always a challenge. And I always had a problem also providing uh, a retirement plan, too. So that's basically it. Plus, people like to use the word uh, welfare when talking about programs, and I think it should be now called human well-being. So welfare isn't the trigger word. Yeah, That's well, the Republicans will continue to use those words, but oh, yeah. um, Ed, Ed well said. If it turns out that they can't get, now you've got Diane Feinstein going, well, I kind of like the filibuster. And of course, Mansion and Cinema. Uh, Jim Clyburn a couple days ago said, who put Mansion and Cinema in charge and why are they more important than Warnock and Ossoff? Which is a really good, damn good question. But if it turns out that they're not able to reform the filibuster, they may well have to push that that massive construction, you know, the Build Back Better program through via reconciliation. And reconciliation requires that everything in the bill have to do with the federal budget. It can have a negative impact. It can have a positive impact. It doesn't matter, but it has to have something to do with spending. 
and uh, the so-called bird rule. And so if they can't fix anything, then, then they try to do the, the bill back better. Putting Medicare for all into it seems to me like that would be consistent with reconciliation. The problem that they're facing is that only half the Democratic caucus signed on to this most recent incarnation that was introduced by Representative Jayapal. And typically, if you don't have 200 Democratic co-sponsors, it's not going to make it through the House. And so there's some work to do. And I think the principal work that needs to be done, Ed, is by people like you and me. We need to be calling our Democratic elected representatives. I know for sure there's one here in, in Oregon who does not support Medicare for all. We've got you know one of those conservatives or whatever you want to call them who represents the south end of Portland. Doesn't represent me, but, uh, you know. And I haven't, you know, I should go through, this is something I haven't done. I'll, I'll say it right up front. I call you know, 202-224-3121 and call each one of our five U.S. representatives here from Oregon. I know the Republican is going to say no. I know this one conservative is going to say no. I don't know about the other three. And uh, I'm pretty sure, Pat, you know, Peter DeFazio will say yes. And, I, and I'm guessing Earl Blumenauer will say yes. And the, and the last guy, I can't recall his name, he doesn't, again, doesn't represent me. But, you know, we need to be calling these people and saying, you know, Medicare for all is coming up. Medicare for all is a possibility. Why aren't you supporting Medicare for all? This is stuff, you know, and, and your credential as a, as a business owner, Ed, uh, is a great one. And so, you know, calling, making that point, tweeting at them. Uh, they all have campaign or they all have, you know, uh, Twitter, Twitter accounts and they're very sensitive to public opprobrium. So uh, go for it. Ed, thank you for the call. And, uh, and thanks for listening all the way back to the days of Brunch with Bernie. And uh, Rob in Mount Iron, Minnesota. Hey, Rob, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Good morning. It's where I uh, just wanted to point out one thing. The people out there that are uh, following the Republican power were emotionally um, immature. Okay, yeah, but the whole thing is is where I've used the words mentally ill, which are the same things when I look at the TV and I see those scenes from January the 6th. You know, I mean, that that was where, you know, I mean, this is what we have in our, our in our country right now. Seventy plus million people that are following this kind of a thought. You know, I mean, well, could you expand on this? Can, can, and how do we finally counter this? Well, this I think you use the word this a whole bunch of times, Rob. I think that what, what you're talking about, the emotional immaturity of the Republicans, is on huge display. This was the op-ed that I published at HartmanReport.com. It's called, you know, Here Come the Meat Wars. And sure enough, in Colorado, the governor, Jared Polis, has uh, proclaimed... And it's just one of those, you know, like National Wildflower Day proclamations, right? Governors do 50, 60 of these a year. You, you, know, you just sign something and, you know, hey, it's, uh, you know, be kind to your pet day. And this was calling for March 20th to be a day that Coloradans refrain from eating meat. One day out of the year, right? And the meat industry and Lauren Boebert, the gun-toting QAnon representative from Colorado, she has now called for Sunday to be statewide barbecue beef day. And the beef council's all hysterical and all this. And, and this is what politicians do 
when they don't want people to pay attention to the important stuff that they're actually doing. I mean, the Republican Party, even in Colorado, it wants to suppress people's votes, wants to keep health care away from people, you know, wants to wants to pollute the air and the water, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They don't give a rat's ass about the public health in Colorado. If they did, they wouldn't have have fought so hard to prevent, uh, uh, you know, to, to block efforts to keep cigarettes away from teenagers. I, I realize that was 15, 20 years ago, but the, the war, you know, the, the war against vending machines and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, the, the Republicans, they, they manufacture fake outrage out of everything in order to stop, in order to avoid talking about what's really important. And I'm not sure if you can call that emo, emotional immaturity or just, um, we just you have know, a, political we just really cynicism. We have a big problem out there as far as most of the people out there that are voting this way as far as Republicans. You know, Rand Paul mm-hmm. with this guy yesterday, you know, I mean, Mr. Fauci, it's where, you know, I mean, under the circumstances, it was where he wanted to be able to take and talk over Dr. Fauci. And the whole thing is, is where, let's face it, it's where um, there are certain people that have a lot of respect out there. And I have respect for Dr. Fauci, but none for Rand Paul. Yeah, and Rand Paul was trying to take him down a notch, and, and, and it didn't quite work out the way that he wanted. Rob, thank you for the call. Josh in Cincinnati, Ohio, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing? Um, big fan. I've been listening to download your show from the White Rose Society. I had a quick point and a comment. Cool. The first one was, um, you remember after 9-11, we had the color-coded scheme for terrorist threat, threats. I think we need to bring that back. So you know, if we have to close the Capitol for on the sixth because we're afraid of it being taken over by GOP right wing, you know, crazies, we should have a color warning system for that. That's a and then, great idea. Today yeah, is an I mean? orange I mean, day for white supremacist, uh, you know, terror threats. Uh, oh, today is a red day uh, for white supremacist terror threats in Washington, D.C. It's only a yellow day for white supremacist terror threats in Wyoming. Um, right. You know, it's uh, Denver just raised their white supremacist terrorist threat. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, yeah. Josh. And then my, my second thing was, um, I, you know, I listened to your rant the other day on cancel culture, and, and I completely agree with it. But if I think if you take a step back and look at when this kind of started, it seemed like it was when a company did something dumb, said something about women or, or, or gay people or whatever, and then, you know, people got together and kind of fought them, boycotted them, you know, dogged them on, on, on social media. I think that's democracy. And, you know, a billionaire spending $200 million on advertising, that's not democracy. So I, I, I'd like to see us frame the cancel culture more as democracy, possibly. Yeah. You know, we need to be, by we, I'm, I'm talking about large D Democrats and small D Democrats, people who believe in this idea that that this country was founded on, which was a radical concept in the 1770s. There hadn't been a, a functioning democracy in the world in thousands of years. And this radical idea that people can choose their own leaders and that those leaders will work on, on behalf of the people. Now, the, the core of that is the idea that the majority rules, that, that 50, 50, 50% plus one is what it takes to define what's going to be the future going forward. And of course, they, they blew that up in the Senate. John C. Calhoun blew that up in the Senate when he introduced the filibuster in the 1830s. And so the Senate is not small, the Democratic. And we have this democracy crisis. We've got an entire political party, the Republican Party, that since 1980, when Paul Rayard made his famous speech down in Dallas to the, uh, you know, to the, to the so-called Christian Republicans saying that, quite frankly, our leverage in the elections goes up as the voting populace goes down. Right. We've had a democracy crisis in this country. And having an entire political party devoted to ending democracy? Not a good thing for a democracy. 
Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Terry in Maywood, Illinois. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. I was thinking about how we can uh, help resolve this so-called situation at the border since Biden with the ones that's coming in, we got the kids' crises. How about uh, maybe the Dreamers can help uh, sponsor some of those kids, and maybe that would enhance them to become citizenships since, you know, we all have to, you know, rise to the occasion. I don't know. Yeah. Just food for thought, Tom. I, you know, I think, I think you may be onto something, Terry. Uh, what's happening, apparently, is that Republicans have been, you know, before the election, they were saying that if Biden was elected, he was going to open the border. And after Biden was elected, Republicans were running around with their hair on fire, screaming that Biden was going to open the border. And since President Biden has been sworn in on January 20th, Republicans have been re- repeatedly going on television and on radio saying that Biden opened the border. Biden never did that. It's a complete lie, but it's being echoed in newspapers in Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and it's causing uh, families, particularly uh, of young sons who are in their teenage years, but, you know, old enough to kind of stand on their own two feet, as it were, to try to get them into the United States right away, hoping that they can get into the Dreamer program because, you know, they know what's going on with this. These people are not stupid. They, they, They know what's going on. And if the Republicans would just stop lying about this and stop yelling in the media that, uh, that Biden has opened the border. Of course, they're not going to stop doing that because they are trying to create a crisis at the border so that they can use that to trash President Biden. I mean, you know, it's so transparent what's going on here, Terry. Yeah, that, no, that's all I want to say, Tom. But that's one way they probably can just deal with the children crisis. You know what I'm just saying? Yeah. Thank you, Terry. Yeah, they might make great foster parents and, and you know, or something like that. I don't know the, the nuance of it, but Diana in Preston, Idaho. Hey, Diana, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey, I wanted to talk about sexual taboos. 
the ancient kings and aristocracy, and religious leaders, too, spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to control and manipulate the masses. And they found one of the most effective ways was to create sexual taboos, which led to oppression. The basic function of a taboo is to so cripple the mind of its victims with intimidation as to make them incapable of correctly identifying the facts. And the royal families had no sexual taboos. They needed fodder for their wars, and they understood if a man was happy at home, he's not so anxious to leave his wife and family to fight some king's war. But if he's unhappy at home and his wife is turned into a shrew because she's unhappy, he can't wait to leave home to murder, rape, and pillage. Hmm. Interesting theory. I always saw this in the realm of religion rather than governance. I mean, for example, this is from the New York Times. It's about this murderer who who killed six Asian women and and two other people down in Georgia. The first paragraph, he checked himself into a rehab clinic for a self-described sexual addiction. He was so intent on avoiding pornography that he blocked websites from his computer and only used a flip phone. He worried to a roommate about falling out of God's grace. His former roommate says that he lived with him at a halfway house near Atlanta. Nearly once a month, uh, the the killer would admit that he had again relapsed by visiting a massage parlor for sex, his roommate said. And he once asked his roommate to take his computer away from him, which doesn't make him any less of a murderer and doesn't make this any less of a racial crime. But the point is that this is what religion can do to people when it's used as a weapon, when it's weaponized. And I'm seeing, you know, religion being used in this way, just twisting people sexually. And I think that it's... Very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. And then you get the hypersexualization in the minds of, of these white men about Asian women, and that just you know puts it on steroids, as it were. Carrie in New Windsor, New York, you wanted to speak to this issue? Oh my gosh, that is amazing. That woman is amazing who just, that's wow. And your updated news about what they found out about the Georgia femicide, that murderer. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, I yes. just, I looked into it. I've been keeping up on it a little bit. Just quick with that woman, what she just said, the people in power have always been less in numbers than the masses. So the people in mm-hmm. power have always done stuff throughout history to suppress the masses. So if you want to make sex taboo, that's perfect because then you're thinking about it more and you can't just like relieve yourself and like then go on with your day you're like totally sexually frustrated and just a mess right and like just not able to like function better uh, you know well you know this is women's history month and i got sexually harassed multiple times verbally right multiple times and i'm so tired of it and anyway someone earlier today who who said that if we want more women to be leaders then we have to talk about women's issues more and i agree and this guy right he doesn't know. I know so many picks that are and were 21 years old. When I was 21 years old, I thought that news was mind clutter. They don't pay attention to the news, you know, like if they're, especially if they're like uneducated, why should they? The news is like negative and gross, the TV news, you know, so it doesn't have to be all negative fires and, you know, car accidents. But all right, so what are you sending me? The kid was. I got it. I'm sorry, Carrie, we're out of time. I was going to say, I always thought that Queen Victoria, who imposed all those taboos on the British, did so because she had been, like, you know, raped or something when she was younger. 
I wonder though, given the previous caller and, and Carrie's comments, I wonder if it was a way of social control. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I don't know that much about the history of Victorian England, and particularly the sexual mores of the time, but it's a fascinating question. We'll be right back. Dr. Justin Frank with us, the uh, author of Trump on the Couch, among other things, professor of psychiatry at George Washington University, politically aware psychoanalyst and psychiatrist. His Twitter handle is Justin Frank MD, spelled just like it sounds. The last time we talked, I had had a caller who was concerned about his son possibly being suicidal. I asked Dr. Frank if he would come on, and he and I talked about it. My sense of it, based on that segment, was that there are many of you out there who may have questions about how do I deal with the trauma of uh, having lost a job, you know, psychologically, or how, how do I put my relationship back together after having lived together for this last year in close quarters the way we have and, and the conflicts that have arisen? How do I help my kids make the transition back into school? I mean, there's just a million questions that come out of this year that we've been locked down. And then and then the larger questions, and I think Dr. Frank is also eminently qualified to answer these, is like, how do I explain fascism to my kids? How do I explain the Trump phenomenon to my kids? How do I explain racism to my kids? There's all that stuff. Dr. Frank, welcome back to the program. It's so nice to have you with us. I'm curious your thoughts on my thoughts on what we should be talking about today, and then we'll get some calls on the board here for you. People are feeling traumatized. What I'm thinking about is that what you said makes a lot of sense. And I just think the questions are going to be far afield because everybody has different concerns. You raised almost everything. What is fascism? What is racism? What was the nature of the trauma of COVID? How do we deal with suicidal family members? What kinds of things are kids going through? What about Trump? How come he's so popular? All those things. I'm open to all of that. I think we can do some of that today, and I'll just have to come back every day for a few months. So let's start with Ray in Tacoma, Washington. Ray, you are on the air with Dr. Justin Frank. Well, here's the deal is I had a brother like about four years ago, got drunk, shot himself in the head, killed himself. My mom couldn't hang, and about three years later, she killed herself with a gun as well. And it seems like, in my experience, people who are suicidal are trying to draw attention to themselves. And I hate to be brutal about it, but if we were to kind of paint suicide as a selfish act, would that sort of apply more of a stigma to it? Thank you, Ray. Well, that's a very, what a terrible situation in your family. I'm so sorry. To me... There's lots of ways to paint suicide, but one way of painting it is that it's murder of the self. It is a form of murder. It's self-murder. And it also damages, obviously, the family in terrible ways. But the purpose of it or the means behind it or the reasons for it varies with, vary with different people. And what I hear, at least certainly from your mother, is that she did it not to call attention necessarily to herself, but because she couldn't bear the pain of losing her son. She couldn't, as you say, hang with it. And that's because the pain was so overwhelming that she felt she couldn't endure it anymore and she couldn't get rid of it. And so the suicide is about trying to get relief 
from pain or ending pain in that case. Why your brother did it, he was certainly under the influence of alcohol, but I don't know what else happened. One of the things about alcohol is that it's disinhibiting. It allows you to express impulses that you might not otherwise do because your judgment is clouded and the breaks on your mind, what we call the superego or conscience, is also impaired with suicidal, with alcohol. And so one might commit suicide or do something also destructive. But I don't think it's to call attention to oneself other than it may be at some deep level for some people trying to kill yourself as a way of sending a message to somebody else who you feel doesn't really care about you. I'll show you what not caring means. I'm going to take it to the ultimate degree. So there's different motivations. I don't know what else to say about it right now, Ray. You're saying that suicide can even be a form of aggression. One of the things you mentioned, if I could just add a a follow-on question, if somebody is feeling that pain and despair and would prefer not to use suicide as a way of avoiding it, how do they avoid that pain and despair of, for example, losing a child? Well, they have to talk to somebody about their pain. One of the things that even as far as Roman times, Cicero wrote about friendship as a way of managing loss and that you cannot manage loss Of course, this is all in Latin, so I can't translate it that well. You can't manage loss without friendship. And that's a similar thing to now. There are suicide hotlines you can call, but when you're feeling despair, you need to share it with somebody and put the feelings into words. Otherwise, they get converted into action, and that's when a person tries to kill themselves. But if they're feeling despair and hopeless, writing about it is not enough. They have to actually speak with a person and be with a person and even touch a person who's in their family and in their life. But there are also suicide hotlines where at least you can start out by talking to someone. And I think every city has them and you could even call 911 on yourself and they'll put somebody on to talk with you. But it requires not being isolated. You're right about suicide. And it is about murder. It's murder of the self. It really is. It's not a. It's wanting to kill the part of you that is in terrible pain. There may be other things that drive a person to suicide who's more psychotic, let's say, which is like a wish to be united with a dead family member or the wish to fulfill something that's really crazy. And talking to somebody might not help in that case. But the importance is to have somebody to talk to. The irony is that COVID makes touching others harder than ever. Lupe in Pueblo, Colorado. You are on the air with Dr. Frank. This is really hard for me to articulate. I lost five family members to COVID. One of them was my father. And one of them was my grandfather. Lost all my father figures, but I wanted to call in because it was such a bizarre way to lose them. I never thought it would be possible to lose them that way. And not only that, my family was deprived of our grieving process. We couldn't be together. And the other element that results to the wound is that 
there are people who tell me, and not only personally, but also on a large scale, like politicians telling me that that is not the way that they died, that it wasn't the COVID. So they are telling me, no, no, it wasn't the COVID, even though it was. It's not like my family just spontaneously dropped dead. It took them. So I was wondering, what is the best way to deal with that type of grief where other people are trying to convince you that it wasn't that that took them and it's just the anger that that brings me. And do you know of any support groups or research that is being done because the COVID has really left behind tons and I, I don't even know how many grieving people it, this pandemic has caused. I'm worried for the collective psychology, the mental health of our country. Thank you. Well, first of all, my heart goes out to you and your losses. And I think that it's courageous to even talk about it and and share this with us and with me. So that's my first thought. I could dismiss quickly the politicians, if that's okay, who say they didn't die of COVID, your family, or that COVID is not real. The best way is not to argue with them, but to say, that's your opinion and you're entitled to it but that's not how i see it and that's not how i know what happened and there's no point in arguing about an opinion that you have it's not a fact and some way of making it clear that that's what they think rather than getting into a rage-filled argument and that is one way of dealing with it and when you hear politicians on tv saying that all I can do is turn off the channel or watch another program or listen to music or something. There's no point. It's their point of view, which is an opinion, because obviously you know the facts and you know the truth. So that's the first thing. The second, the biggest thing is that uh, you've had these horrible losses and the grieving process of not being able to say goodbye or to be with the person or to hold the person or to tell them that you love them or tell them that whatever you need to tell them, that you love them and you're angry or to tell them that they don't need to worry and they should go peacefully so they don't have to hang on if they're suffering. There's lots of different things that you're deprived of in the mourning process and those are all uh, very serious deprivations. There are suicide groups, there are hotlines for it, but there are also groups for loss and grieving groups in every city, including in Pueblo, I'm sure. Thank you. Jordan in Roanoke, Virginia, you are on the air with Dr. Frank. Thank you. I have an adult married daughter with a history of depression who is feeling so isolated during her pregnancy because of the pandemic. She is going to be meeting with telehealth for mental health and is you know, under the care of her obstetrician. What can I do to support her and not exacerbate her anger that I am supporting her? Thank you for your answer. Well, thank you for your call. First of all, I was thinking about the term pandemic, and maybe we should call it contagion. We are faced with a contagion, and that way we can learn about the source of the word contagion, which means with or together, con, and tagion means touch. So it's about touching with, and that is completely 
a big problem with COVID and the isolation from it. It's a contagion that doesn't allow touch unless you're inside the same bubble. So I don't know if you and your daughter are inside the same bubble, but it's important to both talk to her and listen to her about her anger. You can't make her stop being angry, but you can listen to it and say that you understand it and it's really terrible feeling alone. And I'm here with you and I know how terrible it feels. In other words, listening can become for her and you a new form of talking and a new form of touching verbally without hopefully, even on the phone rather than through video. I don't know how about how people are doing these things in Roanoke or anywhere. COVID contagion has turned us all into island. John Donne's poem from many, many centuries ago, he said, no man is an island. Well, that's not true anymore or not as true as it was, because there is a real problem about feeling isolated. So if you can talk to her about it and listen to her about it and letting her know that, and her anger at you, if she's angry at you for helping her, you can say, listen, I'm only helping you because right now, A, I'm your mother, and B, I'm helping you because you need somebody who's not you to help you. It doesn't mean that you have to depend on me or I'm telling you you're weak because you need me or any of those things. But the anger is about the frustration about being shut off and cut off that this epidemic has done. It's really caused a terrible trauma to so many people, not only who've lost people, but who are alone in this situation. So if your daughter's about to deliver, I don't know if there's a father in the picture who can help her or if there are is a sibling who would come and uh, actually quarantine themselves and then find a way to go visit her. There are things that can be done, but it's very hard. And I think the COVID is both a social disease and a physical disease. We're talking about the social problems. Christine in Livonia, Michigan, you're on the air with Dr. Frank. Hi, Dr. Frank. Like the previous caller, I lost my mom last year, and I lost my father in 91. I was 14, and I feel very, very alone. You know, you like you said, your bubble. You have your own problems as it is. And then I feel like I have no one to talk to. I really don't have that many friends. And I can't really contact anybody, and I feel like I'm in this deep hole. And I'm trying to, I have a family, I do have a son, and my husband has family, but they're not very welcoming to me. And I just want to ask you more about how to deal with this. Can you be in the same room with some of those people, even if they're not welcoming? Is there some way, have you be in each other's bubble or having a shared kind of bubble? That would be the first thing. And then the second thing is that it's really terrible to be in a deep hole and you need to have somebody who can listen to you and talk to you. I don't know if that's a sibling or a friend or anyone or call someone. It's really an isolating situation with COVID and people are feeling terribly alone, which is why I'm glad you called in just even to talk for a few minutes. If you need to have someone hold you, touch you, talk to you, listen to you, 
And I hope that that can happen, and you may have to be the one to make it happen by letting people know that you're in pain and sharing it. Yeah, we wish you the very best. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Sunny in Marin County, California. You are on the air with Dr. Frank. I would like to put Trump on the couch, if you could, for me, and explain what could be driving this man who did nothing while over half a million of us have perished. It just traumatizes, and I get infuriated that I don't understand how we sat here just feeling like, hurry, hurry, help. As this man did nothing, I'm wondering if you could diagnose for us what is going on in this crazy head of Well, I spent a lot of time trying to get inside of his crazy head. In fact, the book that I wrote, Trump on the Couch, took about two years to write. And what I discovered is that there is a fundamental conflict from early on between building things or making things or being like a builder like his father and being a destroyer. He would like to break things. He would like to break buildings. He would like to break things that other people have. He would like to attack his father. And the part of him that wants to break things is dominant. And he breaks, as somebody wrote in one of their titles of a book, Whatever Trump Touches Dies. And I think that that's accurate because he wants to break things. He's a destroyer 
more than a creator. And he's been a destroyer for years. But he gets away with it because he can sometimes charm people or make people think he's doing things. But basically, he's a very destructive person. And there's two ways that he has tried to destroy people for the past four years. The first one is by complete neglect. He would rather golf. He never did anything productive to help people. He turned his back on us during the COVID crisis. And he has always turned his back on everybody except the very rich for whom he got tax cuts that really made them and him a lot of money. But the second part has to do with a kind of envious hatred of other people. He can't stand that somebody else could do something he can't do, which is why he is always saying, I'm the smartest person here. I'm the most honest person here. I'm the best at this. I know more than the generals. He says those things all the time. I have the best vocabulary of anybody. Those are all defensive statements that are compensatory grandiosity statements because he knows that he isn't and he can't bear the fact that somebody has better than he is and that's from early on a feeling of envy and that when people have a malignant which i call it envy they attack the good they destroy what's good and what's good about america has been our constitution actually and he's trying to destroy that and he got pretty close to it he's trying to destroy the electoral process why he taps into so many supporters is a very important question also but he taps into them because there are many people who have destructive wishes and impulses but who have never really expressed them so if you go to a sports event a whole group of fans can yell, kill the umpire, or do these things, but they can yell them, but they're in the fans. They're not they're in the stands. They're not on the field. They don't have to carry the ball or tackle somebody or hit a home run, whatever people are doing. They don't have to do it. But Trump has given people permission to express their destructive feelings. And a lot of people are resentful. They're resentful about the government. They're resentful about the economy. Tom was talking earlier about this huge gap between the wages people get and the wages that they should be getting for what they produce. I mean, a huge gap. And I think that people are angry and frustrated about it and have sort of learned to live with it. Either they drink or they get angry or whatever it is in their families or go to church. But Trump said, forget all that. This is a swamp. These are evil people and we're going to get rid of them. So he got into power as a destroyer. The problem is people didn't understand that he was a destroyer and not a builder at all. I wish I could say more about that, but that's plenty. I mean, he's got a deep strain of cruelty. Cheryl in Dallas, Texas, you are on the air with Dr. Frank. I am devastated. I lost my job last year. And then I think the thing that got me the most is my mother it was in another state. She was in Ohio and she passed away in December. I had four days before from the time they told me that she had COVID until she passed away. Oh and then God. it took 30 days before she could be cremated. And I couldn't go there to miss the COVID. And I just feel I'm devastated. I, I, there was nothing like that waiting for her to pass away. I said goodbye to her on a Zoom call. 
And then when she, they had her, when the memorial was done, it was on a Zoom call. I, I don't even, I don't, I, I can't even deal with this. I don't, I don't, I took care of her for 12 years before she went to the nursing home. And I protected her all that time. And then the time came when she really, really needed me. And I wasn't there. And I just, I'm African-American. Culturally, I was supposed to be there. And I was, and I can't deal with it. It's horrible. It's horrible. I don't know what to say because I think that when you can't even reach your mother and be there, you're supposed to be there as a daughter in addition to being an African-American daughter. And it's horrible. And what this COVID experience has done is people don't get the fact that it's also attacked our social fabric. It's not just an illness, which is enough in and of itself causing death. It's an illness that has broken down the capacity to touch, how we've lost touch with each other. The only way to get in touch with your mother is by having much of her inside you as you can and remembering the loving feelings you had towards her and she towards you and talk to any friends or family that you might have where you can hug them if they're in the same bubble or something because touching and closeness is what has been depriving all of us in one form or another. And I think that there's no way to obviously to bring her back and the feeling of loss is so massive that some form of touching, holding, talking, sharing it, like you're even calling in today, although this is far from being personal, it's really not as far as not talking to anybody or not touching. And I think it's really essential. And we can't be together at funerals. Uh, President Biden has tried to help a little bit, and he at least understands about the importance of facing loss and about mourning and tries to bring the country together. But theoretically, from my perspective, he would be having to do mourning every day because every day people are dying and people are separated from their loved ones and can't say goodbye to them. My heart goes out to you, but you need to find some people, either siblings or friends or somebody to just cry with. Because once you do more crying, I think it'll be easier to remember all the good things from her. Thank you. Okay, I'm so sorry. This illness or this pandemic has torn apart, has affected every form of our social life, which is at funerals, Weddings, births, we've talked, we've had callers about all of those things. And that doesn't even count the idea of built in distancing, six feet away, masks, no touching. And then there's all of our social situations where people are losing their job and people are frightened. And there are divisions in our society that are made worse by this pandemic. Yeah, it's a tough You're one. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Irwin in Missoula, Montana. Irwin, you're on the air with Dr. Frank. I'm from a large family, diverse in political views. And prior to the COVID, we weren't really speaking over politics. Some of my family are 
are actually Republican office holders at one time. What I'm getting to is my oldest, my brother-in-law died, and my sister is just kind of clammed up. She won't talk to anybody about it. She was a Republican office holder, and I'm not sure if what to do if we, if we should try to reach out to her or what. Uh, that's just my general question. There will be a service next summer for him. I think that reaching out is the most important thing you can do, and you can do it gently, but do it more than once, every few days even, with a phone call or a note to say that, you know, your brother-in-law is on your mind. I think it's your, I forgot it was your brother-in-law, but he, that he's on your mind and that you're very happy to talk about whatever she wants to talk about and that you can understand wanting to clam up. I mean, it's like, I get it, because we've all been shut down in one form or another over this whole year. Shut down politically, because if there's differences of opinion in a family, people don't talk to each other in the same way, or at all. Or now with this uh, social distancing that's enforced, even with people you know, you have to sit far away and can't hug them. Everyday forms of life are disrupted. So I would try to call her and try to reach out, and then hopefully you can listen. But if there's a way to empathize or identify with her hurt that you understand about clams and you understand about shells, but a shell is not the same thing as a bubble, and we can work and talk within a bubble, but I can't get into her shell. Some way of just talking about that and about also what you miss about the person who died. I don't know what else to say, but I agree with you. I think it's important to take some action and not just wait for the clamshell to open up. You don't have to push it, but you can certainly reach out in a way that involves letting her know you're receptive. Is it a good uh, idea to say, I know you disagree with me politically, but let's set that aside and just be here for each other? That's another thing to say, absolutely. We have a love and other feelings that transcend political differences and that are more important in many ways. And uh, we can put political differences aside right now. Yeah, seems like a, a, a very, very good idea. Mike in Studio City, California. The follow-up to the question about Trump's mental whatever it is, when I see these people cheering him on, these fans or fanatics, and it reminds me of the exact same pictures that we see from the 30s with Hitler, what is going on in their minds? I just don't get it. Well, one of the things that's going on is that when you're very young, and that applies to all of us, we divide up the world into good and bad in our minds into either or and it's how we learn to manage things like night terrors fears is that a good person is that a bad person and we have a monolithic approach to this and this is normal it's a way of organizing it's called splitting where the mind is split but as one matures one realizes that their mother is not all good or all bad, or their father is not all good or all bad. And so now they have a problem where they love the person, but they also are angry at the person. 
So they have to come to terms with a new kind of anxiety and worry that they can damage the very person that they also love. And that's a different kind of anxiety about being hurtful or destructive. But people who are stuck in a splitting position have only the outside who are bad and the inside that is good, and that's it. So there's no possibility of having ambivalence or mixed feelings. So Trump has tapped in to a large swath of our population that is prone to splitting. The government is bad. It was started with Reagan. The government is the enemy. If anybody says, I'm here to help you, I'm here to help you, Reagan said, that's the worst thing you could ever hear. Biden is not trying to correct that. It was like pushing some incredible thing uphill. But why the followers follow Trump is that the bad is outside themselves. Bad is in the Congress. Bad is in the swamp. And he has tapped into the nature of splitting and dissociation, where you can dissociate two parts of yourself. I love my family. I hate outsiders. If I'm white and have a black neighbor, I might be okay because that's a black neighbor I know. But if it's somebody I don't know and I'm white, all bets are off. If somebody's a Democrat or a Republican, whoever it is who's not me, I hate whoever is not me. And I blame them for being destructive and hurtful. That's a way of avoiding responsibility. The person who discovers that they love and hate their mother, that they love and hate the same person, starts to take responsibility for his own hurtful feelings and worries about them, but also has loving feelings and has a complex inner world. The people who follow Trump have gotten rid of that complexity. It's gone. And it's very frightening to see that so many people just see things in terms of either or. We saw some of it when Obama was president. Because I felt in writing my book about him, he was what's called a both-and person. He could see both sides of things. But he was the president of a country that was largely either-or, based on racism, white-non-white, based on feelings about women, feelings about the immigrants. I mean, millions of different things that are split into either-or. And people don't talk to each other now, and they don't listen because they would have to see the other person as a person or as human or as having qualities like the self. And it's normal for children to do that because they have to organize themselves. I've written some papers about that, which I call the green speck theory of life, which is that a child who is having, say, a mac and cheese or some kind of pasta with a cream sauce, if there's a little speck of parsley in there, he won't eat it. It's spoiled by something that's contaminating it. And that's what Trump has conveyed to people, that complexity is a contamination. It's an amazing... Is this emotional immaturity? It's emotional immaturity. And it's a need to protect oneself to manage anxiety. Thank you so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Dr. Justin Frank, you can tweet him at JustinFrankMD, his most recent book, Trump on the Couch. We'll be back same time, same place. Thanks so much for being with us today. 
And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you get out there, tag your it, and be kind to the people around you. I think we have a sense today of how much pain America is in. Let's all be healers to the extent we can. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 